I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is John Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, first solo Remnant uh, of 2022. Um, <coughs> I am still feeling a bit on the covidish side um um you know it's it's too bad that we have to say covid and not flu because then you could do all these sort of you know funny you don't look fluish um jokes but uh such is the nature of things um so what the hell am i going to talk about i guess i I assume everybody is gonna is pretty january 6th out um i certainly am um I do think one point, you know, I may, I wrote two, so I wrote two pieces. You'll can find them in the show notes. One was the uh, Wednesday G file, which sort of got at the heart. You know, I've been saying for a gazillion years about how I need to um, sort of write this big piece explaining what I got right and what I got wrong about fascism. And um, I kind of got to the heart of it in that. And I'll talk about that in a second um, as it relates to January 6th. And then, um, I also wrote this piece for for Barry Weiss's outfit, Common Sense, and, uh, about what I learned from January 6th. So I've done some very heavy lifting on the big picture stuff this week on it, and I I don't necessarily... And we also talked about it a lot on the Dispatch podcast, where we got into a really kind of weird bit of violent agreement um, that had a really interesting sort of diverse response from listeners. I got a lot of critical email about my position and I got a lot of critical email about Sarah's position, even though at the end of the day, Sarah and I agreed. Um, so that was all very strange, but anyway, there's just one point. We'll just see where it goes from there. Um, there's one point I do want to make is, um, Republicans keep saying, and a lot of conservatives keep saying, and with a lot of merit that the Democrats are using January six as a political issue. I think that's absolutely true um and you know i thought you know like you know lindsey graham yesterday offended that joe biden had politicized january 6th you know he issued this tweet saying you know how outrageous it was that joe biden had politicized january 6th and i think that so this is mostly a pundit point more than anything else um or a political analysis point um but i think the thing that a lot of people who are rightly annoyed at some of the ways the Democrats um, are using January 6th don't get is that the reason why they can use it as a political issue is because Republicans have 
kept it a political issue. Um, you know, it's interesting on the on the on John Podoritz's niche podcast over commentary. Uh, he went on about this a little bit with a, in a conversation with Matt Continetti. He was saying, you know, look, I think January 6th was terrible. It was horrible. It was one of the worst days in modern American history, yada, yada, yada. And yet I am constantly annoyed when Democrats talk about it and the way Democrats talk about it. And he was like, why is that? And, and Continetti had a, had a, a good partial answer, I think, which is that, you know, the comparisons to Pearl Harbor and 9-11 are on one level annoying and specious and on another level perfectly fine. Um, the key difference, as Matt noted, was that those other dates, 9-11 and, and December 7, 1941, um, those were attacks from external enemies, um, which created a natural space for both parties to unite and re and actually compete over who was going to be angrier about these attacks, um, it didn't. It was what there wasn't a wedge between the parties that was created by those dates. Wedges emerged later, particularly after nine eleven. But the point is, is that it wasn't like a bunch of Republicans or a bunch of Democrats knocked over the twin towers. Um, these were foreign terrorists who did it. The difference with with January 6th, and one of the reasons, what one of the things that makes January 6th so bad is that, first of all, it was Americans, but second of all, it was Americans with a not, with an undeniable link to the then still incumbent president who was the head of one of the two parties. And um, so you can't, you know, th there's not the same sort of obvious natural critical distance between January 6th and one of the parties that there is between, you know, the events of 9-11 and, and December 7th in the same way. And so the problem is, I mean, and so this is, and this is like one of the reasons why it was really, really bad is that you had this political violence, which I think everyone can, any, every reasonable person can agree was not nearly as profound or as bad as 9-11 or uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, five deaths, however tragic, um, you know, uh, do not equal Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and, and, and people should keep that in mind. But, uh, but there's a certain amount of obvious, transparent ownership when uh for one party when the head of that party who has not been sort of ostracized from the party since then defends the event miscasts the event the reasons why that event took place in the first place um and why and when lots of party leaders are in the business of downplaying or you know, minimizing or contextualizing or what abouting um, the event, um, it gives a sense that the Republicans have ownership of it. So any criticism of it, you know, just put it this way: if you criticize January six and a bunch of Republicans and a bunch of right wing spokespeople get incredibly offended about what you're saying when you criticize January six, it's going to leave the impression that you're offended when people criticize January 6th. 
right? If you actually think January 6th was very bad and you want no ownership of it and you renounce it and reject it entirely, it shouldn't bother you that much when people criticize it. At least you, you, it shouldn't elicit defensive responses um, from politicians. But that's the problem is that Donald Trump will not let people put distance, will not let the Republican Party put distance between itself and that event and the, the schemes that led to it. And so there's literally no way for the Democrats to talk about January 6th without it seeming like it's politicizing it. And, um, and that doesn't mean I defend every way, everything that the Democrats say about it. I don't think we are hours away from the end of democracy or any of that stuff. But um, the actual reason why it's a politicized event isn't because of what Democrats are saying or because Democrats are making a big deal out of it. The driving force, the driving mechanism for why it is quote unquote politicized is because the Republican Party at a very high and deep level is institutionally unwilling or un incapable of providing the kind of political distance it needs to say it has no ownership of it. And, you know, and you can see this this is just sort of transparently obvious everywhere you look and how this debate plays out. I mean, so we're recording, I'm recording this Friday morning, Ted Cruz last night went on, you know, a day earlier, um, he had said that the, the January six riots were a terrorist act or something like that. And he spent a day getting hammered for it from the sort of Bananistas and, and that crowd to the point where he had to go on Tucker Carlson's show and, and grovel. I mean, grovel like John Belushi to Carrie Fisher in, um, in the blues brothers, just begging, um, for forgiveness and apologizing for, uh, you know, using poor word, poor choice of words and blah, blah, blah. These are the same words I believe that were in his original statement a year ago in the wake of January 7th. Um, and I get why people are annoyed with the word terrorist to describe these people, but, um, you know, just for, you know, uh, uh, defecations and guffaws, um, the, you know, the, the legal definition of terrorism is the use of violence or intimidation in order to achieve political goals or something along those lines, uh, seems to me there was some of that, you know, bringing a gallows and hanging and yelling, hang Mike Pence to get him to break the rules about how the electoral votes are certified. You know, again, I don't use the word terrorism to describe all that kind of stuff, but it is not outlandish. It is not slanderish. It is not a huge lie as Tucker babbled last night. Um, and, um, and it's certainly legally and logically defensible, uh, but it's not politically defensible, at least not for Ted Cruz, who, you know, went on TV saying, thank you, sir. May I have another as, as Tucker, um, whacked him in the ass rhetorically. And, um, it was a shameful spectacle for Ted Cruz, you know, who I've said on this podcast many times, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for Ted Cruz. I like talking to him in person. Um, but this was just pathetic. and. Um, if you're a reasonable person from outside of the right wing fishbowl watching all of this, um, 
you might get the impression that the GOP has a problem distancing itself from January 6. And so when Republicans whine that Democrats are politicizing January 6 by criticizing the event, um, they have themselves largely to blame. Let's put it this way. Let's say, you know, let's say it's not Donald Trump. Let's say um, it's, let, let, I'll give a real world example, Denny Hastert. Denny Hastert was convicted of doing bad things with kids, right? Or um, I can't remember the exact charge, but let's just say for the sake of argument that that's what it was. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Um, everybody repudiated Denny Hastert. Everybody said, I want, this is, these are not my values. This is outrageous. This is repugnant, yada, yada, yada. When Democrats criticize Denny Hastert, Republicans don't leap to their feet to defend, you know, pedophilia. Um, if you distance yourself from an offense, it makes it possible to criticize it without seeming like it's being politicized. Um, but the Republican party can't do that at the optics level. Now, again, lots of, lots of people have, you know, you know Mitch McConnell has, and lots of people have said, Darryl, you know, have condemned January 6th in the strongest terms or close to them. But, you know, you get defined in part by the, the, the symbolism and the optics and the things that you get angry about or you prioritize. And it just sure looks like the GOP can't get its distance enough from this thing um, to make it possible for it to um, uh, depoliticize January 6th. Now, that said, I think the way, and this is, you know, this is a point I made on Meet the Press. This is a point that Sarah and I were talking about in the Dispatch podcast. This is a point I've been making for a very long time. I think that the way Democrats are using January 6th, um, first of all, it will, again, pure political punditry, rank punditry here. Um, it's not going to work very well. Um, the, I think my hunch is, is that even the Republicans who say, you know, sort of Trump friendly things in polls, at the end of the day, very few people actually think January 6th was a good thing. And, um, and lots of people, um, hated it, disliked it. Um, the people who are embarrassed by it might get defensive and that, that defensiveness might come through in the polls as support, but I don't think that's there. I doubt, I doubt there's a listener, at, you know, to this podcast on the right who disagrees that January 6th, disagrees with the statement that January 6th was a bad thing. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of debate about how much we should talk about it or how la of what lasting significance it was and all that. That's all fine. But um, the Democrats want to use it as a mobilizing tool going into the midterms. Um, and I just don't think that the people who are really passionate about uh, January 6th and what happened um, in ways that I largely agree with, um, um, I just don't think, you know, first of all, most of them are just going to vote for Democrats anyway, right? Those are the base Democratic voters. And so it doesn't, it's not additive in the way that um, Democrats might think. It might help them hold on to their, you know, bluest of blue seats a little better. But so what? I think they would still have held on to those no matter what. I don't think it moves, you know, what you, what, People are starting to call the Biden Yunkin voter, 
you know, these um, centrist gettable voters for both the Republican or Democratic Party, if you have the right candidate. Um, I don't think that that they're going to be largely moved on the issue of, you know, an event that happened 18 months ago by the time we get to election day um, as a primary reason to vote, particularly in the context of what's going on with the economy, with inflation, with, with, with schools, with COVID. Um, it just, it's, you know, whether it should be or not, it's just going to seem like um, a second order concern without a lot of public policy ramifications that affect people's daily lives, yada, yada. Um, that could change depending on how Trump talks about it. It could change about what we find out from the January 6th committee, all that. But I think politically it's a, um, it's just not the game changer that they're hoping it is. And I also think it's just cynical and kind of gross to say that unless you get the John Lewis act or the, for the people act, um, or even the build back better thing, um, it will spell the end of democracy. Um, it won't, um, you know, and as, as Yuval and I talked for a while on here, um, the other day, I really recommend that podcast. Uh, um, most of the stuff that um, both Republicans and Democrats have been trying to do about about voting is just not that big a deal as of right now. And the stakes aren't that high. It is not democracy on the line. And there is there is there's a problem in democracies are always susceptible to these kinds of arguments. You know, we saw a lot of it from the right um, around um, in the in the wake of nine eleven, and then the Iraq wars. Like you have to support the Republicans um, because we're at war, and therefore you have to support the entire you know Republican agenda, even if it has nothing to do with Iraq war or the war on terror, because you have to elect Republicans everywhere because we're war, war, war. Um, Democrats have tried to do that about you know racism in the past. They've tried to do that. Um, frankly, they've done it when Democrats were the president and there was a war going on. I mean, it's a, it's a common human reaction. But now they're trying to say, you know, at least some of them at the periphery and some of them in the middle. I mean, I saw Eric Swalwell saying some ridiculous stuff that um, that you have to sort of just vote down the line Democrat on every Democratic priority uh, because democracy hangs in the balance. And it, 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 it doesn't. That doesn't mean... There aren't bad things happening out there. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't reform the Electoral Count Act and um, all that. But we're already seeing like a lot of Democrats saying that they don't really want to do a clean fix on that. They want to use the momentum and the buy-in from uh, you know the, the 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 urgency for fixing the Electoral Count Act in order to Trojan horse in a lot of stuff that um, has just been on their wish list for a very long time. And, um, and there are others who are making sort of the left-wing version of House Freedom Caucus kind of arguments saying that um, we can't have a standalone reform of the Electoral Count Act because working with Republicans legitimizes them, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's sort of like the argument from Republicans when a handful of GOP members voted for the traditional infrastructure plan and they were like how dare you work with democrats on anything um now you have you know sort of squad type saying you can't work with republicans on this because first of all it'll take away the 
it, you know, they're doing, they're doing, they're trying to do the same linkage they did between human infrastructure and traditional infrastructure on the Electoral Count Act, which I think is a real, just obvious evidence of the cynicism involved here. Because um, if you think, and all of these people do think, that the the, the most pressing threat to democracy um, are these um, Trumpist types trying to take over the election and the vote counting processes in these various states um, and that the Electoral Count Act was the thing that Eastman and those guys focused on as the sort of the, the, the exhaust port on the Death Star of the Constitution, you know, the thing that they could exploit um, to have their victory, then um, you should fix it even if you have to back burner other priorities, but they want to use it sort of like using January 6th um, to advance the rest of their agenda. And I think that's deeply cynical and it's worthy of criticism. The problem for the GOP, though, is it just makes it it's very difficult for them to, uh, to level straightforward partisan criticisms that will be heard by anybody who needs to hear them when they're spending most of their time um, uh, bending themselves into sort of pretzels trying to half defend or be anti-anti-January 6th and all of this nonsense. Um, you know, if, and this is just, this is just the fundamental problem with the GOP for, you know, in the age of Trump and particularly in the post-Trump realm, if they just told the truth, right? If they just took, you know, so what is Al Pacino and sent to the woman says, all my life, I knew what the right, right road was. And when I came to the fork, I couldn't take it because it was just too damn hard. There have been like, by my count now, like 317 different moments where Republicans could have done the right thing, but instead, because that doing the right thing was just too damn hard, they chose to take what seemed like the easier path on the assumption that Trump would fade or, um, that, you know, people would move on, um, yada, yada, yada. And every time they bet wrong, Mitch McConnell bet wrong when he voted to, um, when he decided that he, he was, he, he agreed with the argument. I mean, it was a very Clintonian thing that Mitch McConnell did. He agreed with the arguments for the impeachment of Donald Trump, but voted with the people who opposed it. And that kind of, you know, kicking the can, uh, taking the easy course thing just keeps biting the GOP in the ass. And, um, and so they can't make clean arguments about the partisanship and politicization of January 6th and all these other things um, that, I, again, I think have merit precisely because they can't cleanly, as an institution, denounce January 6th, Donald Trump's role in it, um, and all of that. And in that context, all that criticism just seems like um, juvenile whataboutism trying to deflect from the fact that th that the GOP is, is, is taking an indefensible amount of ownership in something that is indefensible. Anyway, uh, where to go? Oh, so um, let's talk about fascism for a second or two. Um, 
so you know i'm actually still fascinated by the subject of fascism but i tend not to talk about it too much because um i you know i put this um you know part of the goal i think i've said this a bunch of times is that part of the goal of, of liberal fascism was to get people to stop using the word fascism and um that's another thing i failed utterly with insofar as i i helped make charges of fascism just simply a bipartisan practice um or more of a bipartisan practice which was not my intent um you know one of the underlying uh you know ideas behind liberal fascism was i grew um really exhausted by the constant claims that the american mainstream conservative movement was somehow an adjunct to or a stalking horse for um european fascism and i cannot begin i mean i could begin i just don't know where i would end to give you chapter and verse about how endemic this has been in um american intellectual and journalistic life for really the bulk of the 20th century and i would argue into the 21st century um and some of this has to do i don't want to get too deep in the weeds here but some of it has to do with the 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 degree to which uh soviet stalinist propaganda was successful in the united states a lot of uh fellow traveling and useful idiot intellectuals in the 1930s um absorbed a lot of uh soviet propaganda um and when i say propaganda i just don't i don't mean necessarily just like tortures of uh, posters of dudes with huge torsos you know um uh pitchforking you know hey you know hey kind of thing uh there was a lot of high level <laughs> uh bolshevik propaganda that made its way in throughout academia and throughout journalism um in the 1930s and you know so the for those of you who don't know this the spiel from me you know where fascism comes from I don't want to say where it comes from. That's another conversation where this idea that the American right, um, was, was fascistic. Um, it, it has a lot of different sources, but one of the main ones, and this is the, the propaganda one is that, um, the Soviet union, you know, uh, which we forget was still very young and still trying to solidify all sorts of things. And Stalin was trying to solidify his power by killing people and whatnot. But the Soviet union, um, was married to the sort of Trotsky idea of, of permanent revolution where, uh, Bolshevik were, or Bolshevik or Bolshevik friendly, um, communist groups were expected to take over all of Western Europe too. And in fact, there is a lot of thinking that the, the Soviet, uh, revolution would not be safe unless the, the communist revolution continued to spread westward and around the world. And that's one of the reasons why they fomented, uh, uh, communist agitation and rebellion in country after country, including in the United States. And, uh, one of the problems that they ran into in the thirties was that socialism broadly defined small S socialism, call it collectivism, call it, 
national solidarity, you can call it whatever ism you want, but this idea that liberal democratic capitalism has run its course and the wave of the future, in the words of Anne Morrow Lindbergh, was some sort of collective, non-capitalist, uh, non-liberal um, form of economic you know, coordination, um, where we were all in it together. Uh, this was the idea that, that, that intellectuals around the world thought um, was the hot new thing, right? Just the sort of idea that the, as Mussolini liked to call it, the putrefying corpse of Manchester liberalism um, was going to be replaced by some sort of we're all in it together um, approach to economics and politics. And uh, for the Bolsheviks, obviously that was Bolshevism or communism or Marxism or whatever you want to call it. And the problem was there were a lot of people who liked those basic ideas about social solidarity of socialism and whatnot, but did not like the idea of being loyal to Moscow. Um, um, you know, there's a enormous amount of literature about this. And I took go on about this at great length in my book. Um, there is this, you know, fundamental flaw in Marxist thinking that says that when workers attain, when the proletariat, labor, whatever you want to call it, attains uh, class consciousness, when it realizes um, its class interests, it will f uh, join in solidarity with other workers all around the world. Um, you know, that's the beginning of the Communist Manifesto is workers of the world unite. The problem with this is that let's say you're a assembly line worker in a, in a car plant in, in Munich. Um, you may not like your boss or you may not like the owners of your company, but your sister might be married to the boss's brother. You might, um, belong to the same soccer club um as the boss's nephew you both speak the same language you read the same books you might see each other at sporting events um or you might go to the same church uh you have all sorts of cultural ties that bind you together with a fellow german that just do not exist for someone who has the exact same job and socioeconomic status as you in another country. And the idea that you're going to have more feelings of solidarity for somebody in Cleveland or Budapest as you are for another German in Munich, particularly when you're facing some sort of external threat, was nonsense. And so what happened was a lot of socialist movements were also nationalist movements, and they are proving to be much more popular than international socialism as defined as being loyal to Moscow. And so there were a lot of debates about all of this. Uh, Trotsky famously would call all forms of national socialism right-wing socialism. Um, this starts to establish the idea that nationalism is right-wing. Um, then Stalin puts forth his theory of, of social fascism which basically argues that all um, progressive, socialist, social democratic, all groups that we would all think of as left wing, 
are objectively fascist if they are not loyal to Moscow. And so this creates this period in the 1930s where FDR was, according to Soviet propaganda, a fascist, where John Dewey was a fascist, where, um, uh, what's his name? Um, oh gosh, the guy who was the head of the American Socialist Party, um, Thomas, Norman Thomas, um, was a fascist. Um, uh, this, you know, and, and, and over time, what happened was the, uh, use of the word fascist basically came down to anybody who wasn't loyal to the left-wing popular front that was loyal to Moscow. And that's sort of where, um, the idea that fascist was, you know, was right wing and it's where it's what Orwell was referring to when he said that, you know, fascist has come to mean anything not desirable. It really wasn't a coherent ideological term. It was an insult, um, and an, 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 an anathematizing word for heresy or heretic. And that kind of percolated up through the American intellectual scene to the point where all it took to be considered a fascist was to dissent from the liberal conventional wisdom of the day. And there are a lot of other things that went into this. And I've talked before about Theodore Adorno, who basically wanted to claim that being a conservative was the same thing as being a fascist. And both were essentially mental disorders. And this sort of percolated through a lot of things and got laundered through Richard Hofstetter and others. Um, and, so by the time I get into, you know, my political age, I'm seeing, you know, I, I was a, a eggheady kid and I would read essays where, you know, people were calling, um, you know, this is the way I used to put it in talks about the book, but you know, I, you know, my dad was a, was a conservative of the sort of, you know, Bill Buckley, Irving Crystal kind of variety. And I would read stuff and you know, left-wing magazines and the New York Times op-ed page that were suggesting that, like, my dad was a Nazi um, by extension because of what he believed. And, you know, well, first of all, you can do a pretty thorough search of the, of the, you know, the archives of the 20th century, and you'll find that there were shockingly few Nazi Goldbergs. Um, but more broadly, um, um, the idea that talking about the u.s constitution talking about limited government free trade free minds property rights that the idea that these things were fascistic just struck me as so slanderously ridiculous um that i commenced to do write the book i wrote and, and again i'll talk more at some point about you know where i went wrong with the whole thing but the the reason why I wanted to bring all this up is, you know, I was on TV the other day or yesterday, I guess, um, on January 6th, whatever time you're listening to this. And, um, Chuck Todd asked me about, uh, and no, I'm not an MSNBC contributor. I was just on TV. Um, uh, Chuck Todd asked me about the G file where I wrote about the fascism thing. And so the argument I made in the G file was that I used to believe that the American right was, and I'm, when I say the American right, I don't mean every single member of the American right. I mean the broad mainstream, you know, American conservative movement, establishment, whatever you want to call it, 
was too committed to um, classical liberal notions about uh, you know the Constitution, free speech, freedom of worship, um, of private property, um, too committed to traditional religious conceptions, which um, people always forget the Nazis were very opposed to as well, and so was Mussolini. Mussolini used to, when he was a younger guy, um, stand up in classes during lectures and yell, um, if God exists, I, I dare him to strike me dead right now with lightning. Um, Mussolini was an atheist. Um, he also earned the title Il Duce um, as the head of the, so, as the leader of the socialists in Italy. This was bef- it was before he even um, switched to uh, fascism. Anyway, um, uh, my argument was that just American conservatism was too dogmatically committed to certain precepts um, to uh, be tempted by fascism. Also, I mean, there are other reasons why. I mean, fascism is, is largely um, culturally a, a European phenomenon. It does not, it, we don't have, we have historically, with the exception of a brief moment during World War I, we have had nothing that looks really like fascism here for the same reasons we haven't had socialism. Uh, this is a famous, you know, famous argument that you get from Bryce and Werner Sombart. Sombart asked at one point, why is there no socialism in America? And the, this, this sort of standard exceptionalist argument from liberal and conservative historians alike is that we don't have socialism in America because we don't have uh, a history of feudalism in America. And it was the history of feudalism and the class conflict that it generated in Europe that made Europe susceptible to socialism. And since we didn't have that here, we weren't susceptible to it. I believe very similarly in part because fascism and socialism while not the same thing, are more linked than people want to realize. Um, One of the main reasons why we haven't had fascism here is for the same reason. Without that feudal um, history, you just have a very different kind of political culture. We have a liberal political culture, and it's not going away. Um, But regardless, I always thought that conservatives were just too committed. You know, like, conservatives are pretty, were, for most of my life... (laughs) Or really committed to the Constitution stuff, you know. They, you know, they 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 talk a big game about the Constitution and about um, God given rights and all of these kinds of things. And in my personal experience talking to them, um, I travel a lot in conservative circles. My sense was it was, it was utterly sincere, and and so my belief was that that meant we were largely immune we weren't immune from ever doing bad things but the whole point is is that fascism is at war with all of those kinds of liberal democratic principles conservative religious principles um and that inoculated the american right from being able to turn uh turn fascistic and i still i still believe that those principles immunize the right against um, fascism. The problem is, as I've talked on here many, many times, the right's commitment to that dogma is what has changed. Um, and January 6th was evidence of that. Um, but anyway, I got a lot of like nasty, dumb responses from the left about my point about how modern American conservatism is immune 
to fascism if you actually believe in modern American conservatism. And so I, I just figured I'd make, you know, this one last point about this is that you can make this in a much simpler way. I, I think everybody kind of understands what a generic libertarian is. Um, and, you know, believes there should be very little to no government, right? Or, you know, I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be pejorative here. I'm just, you know, just trying to speak in generalizations. Um, privatize as much as you can. Um, leave things up to the lowest level possible, local communities possible to decide things. Let people figure stuff out on their own. Let people be the bosses of themselves. Um, the individual is sort of sacred. Uh, free speech, you know, go down the line. We, we know what a libertarian is and they come in different flavors and all the rest. Well, it just seems to me axiomatically true as sort of as a fundamental fact of logic that if you are a libertarian, you cannot be a Nazi. And the only way you can be a Nazi is if you stop being a libertarian, because these things are, um, definitionally um, incompatible with each other. The Venn diagrams do not overlap. And don't get me started about, you know, the capitalist free market nature of Nazism, because they'll just tell me that you don't know what you're talking about. But, um, uh, or put it this way, you can be, you know, we all have a rough idea of what a atheist is. Um, by definition, right? This is sort of an Aristotelian point. We know what an atheist is. It's someone who does not believe in God. Um, or at least that's, let's just define it that way for here. So I'll put it to you this way. It is impossible for an atheist to be a devout Christian without stopping being an atheist. Um, the second atheist says, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. Um, and he is my, my savior, my redeemer. And he's the son of God. Um, and it is through him and my faith in him, I will get to heaven. Um, he stops being an atheist. There's just no way to square these circles. And, and you can't be both. Um, you can live a decent, you know, object. You could, you could live a life of a profoundly decent life that for the objective distant observer would be indistinguishable from a Christian life, you know, except for the fact that you're not going to church, baby. But like you could do good works, you could help people, you could be, you could turn the other cheek and you can do all of those kinds of things. But just doing that stuff doesn't make you a Christian. You actually have to have a certain amount of, of theological commitment and dogmatic, you know, uh, divine faith um, to be definitionally a Christian. And to become definitionally a Christian means you cease to be an atheist. Well, that's my point about the role of dogma. So long as conservatives as a matter of culture and intellect um, and ideology are committed to these things that used to define conservatism for most of us, it meant it was literally impossible for them to become Nazis because the things are just not compatible. Um, they don't, there's no way to retrofit one into the other because the Nazis were anti-religion. The Nazis were, um, anti-free market, anti-democracy, anti-constitutional, um, anti-tradition. Uh, I remember Hitler, you know, uh, Hitler expressly rejected the idea of like being a conservative. Um, we can get into an argument about what right wing means, but like, um, 
if he was right wing, it was in a context very different from the American context. And, um, and so I'm not saying that all these people who are abandoning, uh, traditional fusionist conservatism, Buckleyite conservatism are Nazis. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying that I can't make that argument about what these people are doing. And at least until I understand it better. I mean, certainly if you spend more of your time, uh, obsessively bitching about say David French, than you do about members of the alt-right who, uh, like your tweets and, uh, promote your work, I'm going to have my suspicions. Um, if, you buy into the idea that Ashley Babbitt is some sort of horse vessel of MAGAism. If you buy into the idea that liberal democratic par- capitalism is for effeminate, weak, um, uh, unmasculine men, and that you know the new age of strength and whatnot uh, rejects all those kinds of tenets. Again, I'm not going to defend you from the charge of uh, fascist. I'm not either going to call you a fascist, but it just seems to me that like all bets are off on, on where that crap is going. And as, you know, as a small C conservative and not just a big C conservative, um, I, and also as a guy named Goldberg, you know, I tend to like ideologies that I think are incredibly well insulated from those kinds of, uh, uh, blurred distinctions. Um, you know, the more fiercely people commit, Americans commit to classically liberal notions about, about, uh, individual rights, democracy, constitutionalism, the rule of law, and all these kinds of things, the better I sleep at night knowing that this country is going to be okay. The more people say, oh, we're, I'm just asking questions. We got to revisit all of these kinds of things. The more nervous I get. And, um, uh, and I don't, I honest, as I wrote in the G file, I honestly don't, I don't care what label you want to put on what happened on January 6th. The simple fact is that the Overton window of American politics moved in a very bad direction or the Overton window about conservatism in America or the right moved in a very bad direction because of January 6th. You gotta remember, you know, that all happened because not just because of a bunch of law, deliberate lies, deliberate myths, um, that were created. It also happened, um, after scores of judges looked at these claims that Trump and his allies were making and said there was no merit to it. So uh, already, if you're still clinging to the idea that the election was stolen, even though a bunch of Trump appointed judges, including three, uh, Trump appointed Supreme court justices all said, uh, there's just simply no merit here. Um, this is nonsense. And if you are still clinging to the idea that the constitutional order needs to be overturned on the basis of those lies that have been scrutinized by, by judges, don't tell me you're still really committed to the rule of law, right? Don't tell me you're committed to facts and truth. Um, because Something else is going on. Don't tell me that you're opposed to violence, but, um, um, and that you're, you know, you're just really mad about the hypocrisy about Democrats and, you know, and the, and the George Floyd riots when 
you think when you roll your eyes at the idea of criticizing someone for chanting hang Mike Pence. Um, something bad happened psychologically to the right because of January 6th. And the fact that, and this is gets gets at the thing I was I wrote about for Barry Weiss, and the fact that these sort of profen- professional rabble-rousing entertainment class on the right can't let go of the narrative that really the bad guys were not us um, is a sign that that this stuff isn't over yet, and it's 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 very very depressing. Anyway, uh, what else was I going to talk about? Um, I talked about the Ted Cruz thing. Um, oh, you know, just for a second. Um, and I, I don't know, I might write about this today. I don't know, but, um, um, this, this point that Yuval and I talked about that I've written a bit about already about how both parties are connected are can't let go of their scripts and the scripts increasingly don't describe objective reality um is kind of an ob- becoming an obsession of mine a little bit and and i think that like where we're seeing it most egregiously right now is with the democratic party um i think it'll come back and be agree well i shouldn't say most egregiously right now because the january 6th thing is the most egregious example of that in recent memory um you know if if you know if the if the, the the script according to Tucker Carlson, Matt Gates, and Marjorie Taylor Greene is that um, January sixth was a false flag operation, that's that's a worse departure from reality than what's going on with the Democrats. But as a matter of practical politics, um, you know the Democrats ha- have the, there's this asymmetric problem between the two parties. The GOP doesn't really claim to be. Um, really competent at having government do stuff that government isn't supposed to do, right? Because it doesn't believe the government should do stuff that it isn't supposed to do. And it's a definition of what government's supposed to do is more restricted and humble and modest than the Democrats. And, you know, that's why, you know, um, all other things being equal, I'm a Republican. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not a member of the party. I think the party um, deserves uh, to get a really, really vigorous, um, enema, but, um, and anyway, uh, let's not carry that metaphor too much farther. Uh, but the Democrats or liberals or however you want to label them, um, they honestly and sincerely believe that the government can do almost anything, you know, in, in, to some extent or another, I mean, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but not much. Um, there's no sort of, you know, I, I've long argued when I get into sort of political philosophy, um, Eric Vigellen mode that for a lot of progressives, the state is supposed to do the things they would want God to do if they thought God existed. And there's the whole point of social justice is to look at society holistically or from a great height or whatever and wherever there is stuff that you do not long like uh, to label it uh, injustice and to fix it, and um, and if you look at it from a you know a high enough altitude, you'll see. First of all, you'll see lots of things that you aesthetically don't approve of, um, 
and you'll try to fix it from above when a lot of things cannot be fixed from above. Pod mentioned the other day on, uh, again, on his, on his niche podcast, um, this thing he heard, um, Nat Glazer say years ago. And I asked Pod where he, um, where I could find the quote, cause it sounds really familiar to me and I was poking around for it. And he says he's looked everywhere and can't find it, which means he probably said it in a conversation or in a speech and didn't write it down. Um, but I think the point is right. Um, Nat, uh, for those of you who don't know, Nat was one of the founders of the public interest. Uh, he was, he replaced Daniel Bell for the first year as the co-editor with Irving Crystal. He was one of the guys from alcove number one at city university. Um, and, and even though he was always much more of a Democrat than say Irving, um, he was one of the, you know, original neocon intellectual neocons. And, um, and anyway, Nat made this observation that at some point in like the 1960s, um, reformers or Democrats, I can't remember who the, the specific people was talking about, let's just call them Democrats, you know, Democrats stopped caring about doing the things that government was good at and was supposed to do and started caring about things it didn't know how to fix. And so like, if you read Nat's, when I was looking for the quote, I reskimmed the, you know, Nat Glazer's first essay for the PI from, you know, a half century ago, you know, the, his study of the, you know, of the great society showed that, you know, we, we really didn't know how to stop to, to cure poverty. We still don't know how to cure poverty. You know, I mean, we can, um, we can make people richer. Um, you know, and so in that sense, sure. If we, if there's a family that's making $12,000 a year and we, we know we can give them a hundred thousand dollars a year and ta-da, statistically they are no longer poor, but, um, we don't know how to keep people out of poverty. We don't know how to do, to get, to kill poverty, um, without all sorts of unintended consequences. We've gotten better at it in fairness with old people. And this is a point Irving used to make because old people, um, they're kind of set in their habits of life and they're not prone to go, I mean, this, these aren't Irving's words. They aren't, you know, prone to spend some new windfall in social security on hookers and blow. Right. I mean, they, they, they live fairly conservative lives by the time you hit retirement. And so you can keep old people out of poverty in ways that are a lot easier than keeping young people out of poverty. But regardless, the party of government started thinking that they could fix all of these big, large, not, not necessarily purely abstract, but these big sort of endemic, um, eternal problems and they stopped thinking about like clearing snow or fighting crime um or uh running the public schools well and um and i think that this is one of the this is this bind that the democrats have gotten themselves into is they have these incredibly grandiose ambitions for government there's this hilarious debate going on among democrats right now but whether or not they should use the term uh, transformative or transformational to describe the Build Back Better bill. Um, and the idea that somehow there's a voter out there who is like, 
well, I don't like this build back better thing because it's only transformative. Um, and then you tell them, no, 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 it's transformational. And they're like, oh, well, in that case, I'm all in favor of it. I'm going to vote Democrat now. Like who, who gives a rat's ass which word you use? And I can guarantee you, having looked them up, um, the difference between the both words is pretty academic. Um, one is description, descriptive of the nature of transformations, and one is uh, descriptive of a transformation. I mean, there you go. Um, but, you know, like they want to swing for the fences on this, on this massive stuff when uh, they're not running out their bunts. You know, they're not, they're not, uh, you know, they're not hitting singles. And, you know, you look at everything from the, the just the whiplash and doing inducing seesawing stuff about COVID testing standards and rules and quarantines and all those kinds of stuff. Um, never mind the bugging out of Afghanistan. Um, never mind how these guys can't figure out how to talk about inflation or supply chains. There is enough stuff for Democrats to do as the party of government that they don't need to be any more ambitious. Right. And, and this is, this is the thing is like for both, you know, I talk, I talk here a lot about how both parties seem like they're determined to be minority parties. If either party could just simply promise on being the party that does the stuff that everybody thinks government can do, should do and nothing else and just do it really well. That party would um, uh, be a majority party for a very long time. Now, again, I, as a conservative, would probably disagree with where the national consensus is on what, on the stuff that government should do. I think government should be doing a lot less. But um, if you're going to do a Venn diagram of, the, of all the different kinds of ideological descriptors, you know, liberals, moderates, Marxists, Leninists, anarcho-capitalist, conservative, Republican, whatever labels you want to put on it, um, uh, that sort of covered the majority of all that covered the American population. There'd be one massive circle in the middle where almost everybody except like the anarcho-capitalists and the hardcore Marxists overlap, which would cover like run the public schools well, run the roads and mass transit well, um, uh, run the public hospitals and the ambulance and emergency services well. Fight crime appropriately. Uh, you know, you can go down that kind of nuts and bolts. This is what government is for, whether at the state, local, or federal level stuff. And if you could convincingly persuade people that that's all you were interested in getting right and then get it right, um, that would make, I'm just going to assert, a fairly large majority of voters pretty friggin' happy. And here's the irony of it is that it would actually be really, really, really good for progressives. Um, if you want to make lasting transformative, transformational, whatever trans word you want to use, um, change in this country driven by government. Well, here's the first thing you've got to do is get people to have more faith and trust in government. And the way you do that is not by continually biting off more than you can chew. The way that you do that is by doing the stuff that you're supposed to do well. Do your job. If you run a pizza parlor and, you know, if you're the manager of a pizza parlor 
and you want to move out into like doing sushi stuff and you ask your boss to do it, I guarantee you, your boss is going to listen more sympathetically to you if you're a really good pizza joint manager. But if you can't manage the pizza part of it, why is he going to listen to you about some sort of grandiose expansion plan into something he knows nothing about? The same thing sort of applies with all of this. The idea that somehow it's in the long-term interests of the Democratic Party and progressives to swing wildly for the fences and, and bite off more than they can chew at a moment when they are losing the faith and trust of vast numbers of Americans because they're, they're screwing up the stuff that Americans historically trusted them to do well, which, again, public schools, running the city, social services, and all that kind of stuff. Get that stuff right and then have the conversation about, you know, cradle grave welfare state. I'll oppose it still, but I even I would be more sympathetic if these people could run government well. Instead, you still got, I mean, for every um, San Francisco mayor and Lori Lightfoot from Chicago um, who's like realizing, holy crap, we've gone too far indulging the teachers unions. Um, and indulging the sort of defund the police crowd, you still have someone like this new Manhattan DA who's out there saying, basically, unless you commit murder, we're not going to try to put you in jail. Um, that's crazy. It's just crazy. And, um, and, you know, at this moment when the Democratic Party desperately needs um, to show some competence about the school stuff, the teachers unions are basically like, Screw that noise. We want to stay home and eat Cheetos or whatever. I mean, at least in Chicago. I don't want to be too broad brush because a lot of schools are staying open. But um, um, being just competent at doing normal government stuff would actually be, first of all, in, it's defensible in its own right, but it would be better for liberalism and progressivism in the long run than this crap that they're doing now because what the crap that they're doing now are trying to do now um it foments resentment and 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 blowback um and you know i just don't understand why you can't have a i guess i do understand i just think it's so stupid um i was gonna say i don't understand why you can't have a little patience for the long game if you're a progressive and you know and and deal with the stuff on your plate right now, like a pandemic, inflation, and surging crime, stuff that people already agree the government should handle. Deal with that and worry about your transformative changes down the road. But one of the reasons, but I kind of do understand it, is that, that the Democratic Party isn't just merely the party of government in the sense that it is in favor of more government. It's the, Democrat, it's the party of government because it relies on government workers on almost every level as the, um, as the foot soldiers, lieutenants, and generals of the party. It is a party of and for people who work in the government. Um, uh, not entirely, obviously, but um, to a huge extent. If you go through, go to Open Secrets or any of those websites that do the, that catalog, you know, uh, giving to campaigns and just look the public sector unions. Pippa, what are you doing? Come on, no, get out. Out, 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 out. I know you people think I'm a monster, but um, 
she she will bring the dingo and then they will start trying to jump in my lap while I'm trying to get this thing done. Anyway, um, if you look at the the websites that you know catalog the donations to campaigns and parties, and you just go through the list of page after page of of every government sector union with 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 the possible exception probably a cops and a couple others like that it is you know but the you know the AFSCME types the teachers unions the national treasury workers unions the postal service unions you go down the list it's all like 95 96 98 uh to one giving to democrats and um the the election workers the the you know the quote-unquote volunteers who actually get to take time off from their jobs um while still getting paid to do campaign work um and then the sort of associated sort of trial lawyer types it is a party that is sociologically married to the idea that expansion of government um is 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 in their self-interest now i am perfectly willing to concede that they also think it's good for the world and, and is part of the you know uh the, the mission to do right in the world and all that kind of stuff but this is always sort of the problem with motivated reasoning is that when you have a self-interest um it is just so much easier to convince yourself that you're doing good for the world as well and particularly when that's what all your rhetoric is about and i'm not normally in the business of giving advice to how democrats and progressives could um win more hearts and minds but it is just just another one of these great examples sort of like i was talking about at the beginning about how the republicans most of these republicans know in their hearts and in their heads that continuing to play footsie with trump and this bs um is bad for the party in the long run. They know, and they bad for the country in the long run. They know it. Um, uh, but the incentive structure that we've got right now is such that um, it's not in their own self-interest. So they convince themselves, they have motivated reasoning, um, and convince themselves that this is the smart play or the or the the noble play or the quote unquote conservative play, and it's all BS. And similarly, I just have to think that there are lots and lots of smart Democrats out there who understand that um, the long-term interests of the Democratic Party in the country are much more invested, are, 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 would be much more advanced by dealing with some of this stuff um, in a much more humble and pragmatic way and not swinging for the fences. Um, but the internal incentive structure and the self-interest just run against it. And so you have collective action problems on both sides where doing what is in the interests of the institution and the country may be obvious, but they're in nobody's personal self-interest and no, no faction's personal self-interest. And so they just go along with the mob and things get worse. And, um, um, I think it's, uh, a major sort of part of the explanation about why both of these parties seem determined to be minority parties. Um, um, and I don't mean that like they, 
they want to stay minority parties. And so that the second they get a hint of being a majority party, they start working their hardest to figure out a way to lose power. Um, and we've seen this now with, with the trading of various Republican and Democratic Congresses, Republican and Democratic administrations. And, um, and it creates its own logic because every time it creates this sense, well, we're not going to be in power for long, so we better swing for the fences, which is exactly what invites the backlash that guarantees that you won't be in power for very long. And again, if Joe Biden had just come in and, and focused on doing the things that people wanted him to do, that not, not his base, but like the voters who, made, who gave him the majority of votes, if he just focused on the things that government is supposed to do, and did it well, he would be in such better shape. But he swang for the fences, and um, and and now the Democrats are in incredibly precarious situation. Donald Trump swang for the fences, not necessarily with the policy stuff, um, but with his whole posture. And he bought a Democratic Congress, and then bought a defeat. Barack Obama, um, you know, swang for the fences, and and at least he got reelected. But he also saw his party lose um a thousand democratic positions at the state local and federal level over his tenure and they weren't equally distributed the 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 moderate and conservative wing of the democratic party was destroyed by barack obama um because again didn't want to govern from the center and um uh again i would prefer moving the country in a more right-wing direction and not just a centrist direction, but I think it would be better for the country to have be moving in a stable centrist direction um, than have this seesawing, zigzagging nonsense. And the way you get rid of that, this this ridiculous pattern, is by actually having parties that are committed not just to the country, but to their own long-term institutional health and credibility, and neither of them are that. So anyway, um, I was going to talk about some other stuff, including this jackassery that I was dealing with on Twitter this week about Glenn Youngkin, but I'll, I'll, maybe I'll do that in the G file. Um, uh, thank you for all the uh, concern when I was sick. Um, I'm still not completely out of the woods. This COVID thing was weird. Um, I can't remember if I told the listeners about it, but you know, I had this terrible, terrible... The, the worst part about it for me was the fever. Um, which normally, like when I have a fever, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. And then I, you know, I sweat like a fat man and all you can eat pasta bar and it, the fever breaks and then I'm done with the fever. And with this, the fever like broke two or three times, three or four times, and then came back and it was really frustrating. Um, and I get all sorts of aches and pains when I have fevers. I'm, I'm just a miserable person when I have a fever. Um, but maybe the worst thing I had, and the same thing happened with David French, got this just unbelievably bad sore throat. I mean, it felt like my throat was going to close up on me and like, um, and I was going to have trouble breathing for that reason, not for the, the, the normal COVID lung stuff. Um, and the weird thing, and again, and, and the exact same thing happened with David is that it was like one of the worst sore throats I ever had. It didn't get better over time. It just was a steady state bad. And then all of a sudden, just like at 11 something in the morning on a Wednesday or a Thursday, it stopped hurting and just went away. And it was bizarre. It was like, you know, a light switch that just turned off the, the pain. And um, anyway, I just, I know so many people have different responses to the whole thing. 
Um, it just, it's really kind of weird. So anyway, uh, thank you for all the feedback on that. Thank you for the nice notes about, you know, the stuff I wrote this week. And, um, next week we'll probably do a drive time because we'll have, uh, we'll have Guy Denton in, uh, the United States of America for the first time. It'll be very exciting. Um, I was telling them the other day I had this, I had a lot of weird dreams when I had COVID. And one of the dreams I had was that, um, because I've only ever seen guy on this little tiny box on my computer screen. Um, I thought I had this weird dream that I found out when he finally got here, that he was actually a tiny miniature human and that all of the furniture and accessories in his office, um, were actually miniatures. And he was like this homunculus. I mean, not like a Barbie doll small, but like, like, um, uh, like an Oompa Loompa kind of sized. And, um, it was a very, very weird, weird dream. And I brought it up with him and he was a little disturbed. So hopefully we'll find out that he is not in fact, um, a member of the lollipop guild. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. So, uh, with that all said, thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.